0: Amen. Thank you, Carmen, for reading that for us today. And uh, today we're actually going to focus on chapter 18 and then the first few verses of 19 that were read, they were read so that we would have really an example of what we're going to focus on in chapter 18. So I wanted those two connected together. Today is going to be a Bible class. Oh, where's all the excitement? Yeah, right. Uh, I I want you to have your pencil, your pen out. I want you to be able to take down some thoughts, some notes, because what, as a shepherd of this flock, one of the shepherds, very important that we rightly interpret the Bible, that we, more importantly, rightly interpret the book of Acts. And so I want to share some things with you that I believe will help delineate for your future Bible study, to understand how to put Acts in the proper context, okay? So we're going to be doing some Bible study today, and uh, the scripture we're starting with is verse 18. It was read for us. This story uh, unfolds before us. But before we go there, let me just make some comments that I think are very important and quite honestly, I'm not convinced a lot of Christians understand. They don't understand the difference between the book of Acts and the book of Hebrews, for say. So I, I want to I point some things out to you. The story of the book of Acts has proven to be a study in transitions. The entire book of Acts is all about transition or new beginnings, It's the beginning of the new covenant found in Christ. It's a picture of the church, the early church, in transition from Judaism to Jesus. Remember, the book of Acts did not start with the Gentiles, it started with the Jews in Jerusalem. This is a book that gives you a flux between Judaism and Jesus, and you're going to see that flux all the way through. We're going to see it even today in our reading and in our study. Uh, it, it, it's, it, it started on the day of Pentecost. That's really where the book of Acts really is triggered. That's when the church was started or launched. And, and we begin to see transitions immediately. We'll look at one of those in Acts 2 uh, in just a moment. The old ways of Judaism are constantly being faded out ever so slowly through the book of Acts. And the new ways of Jesus, or the new covenant is what we would call it, that Jesus instituted, uh, they're gradually taking root in place of Judaism. There's an interesting parallel between the book of Acts and the book of Hebrews. Both of them record the early church, the beginning and the early developments in the church. But they record from different directions, coming from different angles. You're looking at my palm, right? And I'm looking, you're looking at my hand, I'm looking at my hand. You're looking at my palm, I'm looking at the back of my hand. What you see in my palm is completely different than what I'm looking at the back of my hand. I don't have any hair on the palm of my hand. I'm thankful for that. There's no hair on that side. But I do see hair on the back side, okay? Uh, it, it, I, we're looking at the same thing but we're getting different views the book of hebrews the book of hebrews shows us the theological transition from Judaism to Jesus the book of acts shows us the historical transition from Judaism to Jesus it's really important that we under, excuse me, understand the difference between those two. The theology, the doctrine of the book of Hebrews, records that the laws and the ceremonies and the ritual patterns of the Old Testament were giving way to a new life that was rooted in grace. That's what Hebrew shows us. It shows us the doctrine, the tra- the, the transition of doctrine from Judaism, the old law, into grace. The book of Acts shows us the historicity. It's showing us the historical change in people in this flux, in this transition. So the history of the book of Acts gives us many insights into the depth of Judaism as we see people coming to Jesus Christ. We see in Acts them receiving Jesus as Savior, We see in the book of Acts, we're introduced to the church by the baptism of the Holy Spirit at salvation, becoming part of the church, identifying with the church in every way. But still, oftentimes in the book of Acts, those same people that are being saved are hanging on to the old way, to Judaism. It's a book that is in transition God could have hidden that from us. He could have just said they were were Jews uh, following Judaism, and now they're Christians following Jesus. He doesn't do that. He gives us a whole book of the movement from one to the other. You say, why is that important to us today? I mean, I feel like I'm sitting in a seminary class, and what's the significant value for me today? Well, first of all, know this that all Scripture is God-breathed, and it's written for, the Bible says, first and foremost, for our instruction. Everything in the Bible is important. Sometimes what we read doesn't seem to apply to my my life right now. Believe me, it does. You just got to dig deeper to find what God's trying to say in that text. I, I want you to know that there is a difference between you taking your experience, whatever your experience is in your walk with Christ, and trying to make that your theology than letting the Scripture and interpreting the Scripture accurately and letting your theology come from the Bible. Today in this world, many Christians, many pastors, whole denominations of people are following their experience as if it's the truth and the reality is only the only absolute truth is this so we must properly exegete we must properly interpret the bible to our lives amen that's why i'm saying what i'm saying about the book of acts it's a study of transition where the book of hebrews The book of Romans, those are books that are strong in doctrine, okay? If you're going to build doctrine, systematic theology, seeing the whole of Scripture, you don't do it from the book of Acts. Why? Because it's a transitional period of time. I'm not saying that there's not biblical truth in the book of Acts. There is. But you'll find oftentimes the experiences that happen in the book of Acts don't necessarily line up well with the rest of Scripture. And if you only take the book of Acts to build your doctrine and what you believe the Bible's saying, you're going to miss the truth of God's word. I, I put out a post this morning and I think it threw some folks. The responses were all over the map. Uh, but I talked about that your experience should never exceed your hermeneutics hermeneutics in simple layman terms simply means the science of interpretation and by the way biblically speaking there is a science to studying the bible asking the right questions as you read a text in observation will lead to the right interpretation which will lead to the right application But to skip over, not looking at the scripture for what God is saying, and simply look at your experience and make the Bible fit your experience, you could end up following false truth. And many have fallen into that trap. And so that's what we're looking at today. That's why I want to take time just to lay this out for you. Uh, Some Jews in their minds, they saw Christ for who he really was and is but they still weren't willing to leave Judaism. I, I want to begin this morning by making a very important point about how the book of Acts is not a foundation for systematic theology. I hope I've done that, but but I want to show you an example. So take your Bible and turn. Again, this is Bible Study 101, okay, learning how to properly exegete a text, how to properly apply a text, and knowing when to take a text as a whole Bible doctrine versus a something that's happening in a transition. It's still real, but you don't build your life on it. Okay, so Acts chapter 19, if you will. Turn to Acts 19, verse 2. Okay, it says that Paul met some disciples and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, when we read that, it leaves us with a serious implication. The implication is Paul's assuming that you could believe and not receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, but if you go over to the book of Romans, go to Romans chapter 8, verse 9. Go to Romans chapter 8, verse 9. Look what it says. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, If if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Listen now, listen to this. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. What is he saying? If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. So the question is, is the Bible contradicting itself because in chapter 19, it looks different. The statement Paul makes in Romans is absolute statement that every Christian has to have the Holy Spirit. But in Acts 19 too, we have this statement that may indicate there's a gap between when a person is saved and when they get the Holy Spirit. And there are a whole lot, as I said, of denominations of Christians who base their theology not on Romans, They base it on the book of Acts, which is in a constant state of flux because it's a book about the historical transitions of the Jews and the Gentiles who are coming to Jesus. My point is, what Paul said in Romans stands in all the Bible. In the the New Testament, the letters that he wrote, the book of Hebrews, it all reads the same as Romans. It doesn't read the same as what you just read in Acts 19, too. That doesn't mean that there's a lie there, that it didn't really happen as it says in Acts. It did happen that way. But it's not the common. It is not the normal. Why is it not the common? Because you're in a transition book. Does that make sense? You have to look at the book of Acts as a transition rather than as a strong book of doctrine and theology to build your life on. You're learning how people came from Judaism into Christianity, and I'm telling you they're all over the map. Keep that in mind. Don't take it to mean that this is the way it ought to be. Because if you do, you're going to have a hard time making that fit systematic theology. It's not going to fit well. Okay? So, let's keep moving. I want to say a few more things here before we get to the text. Inside these historical transitions of the Jews that are recorded in the book of Acts, we find that these transitions aren't easy, but because the reason they're not easy is because Judaism is not not easy. Judaism is not, how many of you have been taught to believe Judaism is a religion? Raise a hand. Judaism is a religion. It's okay, raise a hand. I was taught that way, okay? Okay, I'm not saying it's not a religion, I'm going to tell you that it's a lot more than a religion, okay? I want to show you why the book of Acts, you see this flux, this give and take, and people moving to and from Judaism to to Jesus, and they seem to still be hanging up in Judaism, and they haven't fully come over to Jesus. I want to tell you why. Because, Because it's as much a nationalism as it is a religion. It's also Judaism is just as much a culture. It's a race of people. It's a way of life. It's a heritage. And because it's so much more than just a religion, the Jewish people are in love with Judaism. There's a pride that goes with Judaism to a Jew, and rightly so, because God's the one who ordained Judaism. That was the way of the Old Testament, right? And so it's divine in its institution. And it provided a way of life for God's chosen, holy, and dearly loved throughout the Old Testament. So when you introduce those folks, the Jews, to Jesus, that is a huge monumental shift for them. It's more than just dropping this and going to that. They can't do that. They're still bringing some of this with them. We shouldn't be shocked by that. If you look around today. Look at the Jewish Christians who have not fully adapted into the church which Jesus started or with which God started in Jerusalem among the Jews. Have you ever heard of Jews for Jesus? Have you ever heard of messianic Jews? They have their own worship. They don't meld into the body of Christ the church not well i'm not saying they're wrong i'm not saying that we're right i'm just telling you the facts judaism is more than a religion and when you've been raised and steeped in that history and that understanding even coming to jesus fully you still bring judaism with aspects of judaism with you you just do let me give you a transition that's in the book of Acts, or that's in the gospel, and the book of Acts fleshes it out, okay? So Jesus meets with his disciples in the upper room on the night of his betrayal. What does he do first in that room with his disciples? And by the way, only two disciples knew where that meeting would be held. Jesus only told two of them, and he told them to go out that day and get the, get the lamb and go prepare the lambs, have it sacrificed at temple, and then bring it, and, we'll, and and I want you guys to prepare the lamb. He did not let the other disciples know where they were going to be meeting that night. So the two went and they prepared the lamb as Jesus had requested, and then Jesus took the disciples to that location. Why? Why didn't he just tell them? Because Judas would have gone to the soldiers and told them, we're meeting tonight at this location. And that would have disrupted what must happen in that room that night. What was so important that had to happen in that room? Well, the first thing they did when they got there, they held the Passover meal. They actually had a Seder, a Jewish Seder. Jesus participated with the disciples in a Jewish Seder meal, the full Meal that they would celebrate, remembering how God provided for their people for 40 years in the wilderness, okay? That meal took place, totally Jewish, Judaism, steeped in it. After the meal, Jesus then took the bread and he gave thanks for it and he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is going to be broken for you. He took the cup. This is going to be a new covenant in my blood. And he took the disciples for the very first time through the Lord's Supper after the Seder meal. What was he implying? It used to be for the Jews, the Judaism, that the the Passover meal was God's way for you. But as of tonight, when I go to the cross and I die, you need to understand that this is going to be the new meal. The old meal is now will will then be illegitimate. It doesn't mean you can't take it, church. It doesn't mean that you can't go to a Seder meal. You can't go to a Passover meal with someone. There's nothing wrong with that. You're remembering the way the Jews used to function. But here's the key. With any observance of the Old Testament, you must do it. With Jesus in full view. If you cannot see Jesus in it, don't do it. Because it's just an Old Testament law, ritual, ceremonial uh, law. Don't do that. But Jesus took out the old and he instituted the new. Okay? So this, I just showed you Jesus instituting a new way. They go to the book of Acts and guess what they do? they're saved that's new they're baptized that's new into the body of christ they meet in homes that's new they always went to synagogue they also took the lord's supper in the home totally new they didn't wait until the next year when the passover meal the feast would take place in jerusalem they were eating in the home daily breaking bread, fellowship, and giving themselves to prayer. All of this is new. Yet, yet, I want you to see this. Turn in your book, in your Bible, to Acts chapter 2, verse 46. Sorry for the Bible lesson, but I got to tell you something. As one of the shepherds of this flock, we do not want our people to be ignorant Of understanding how the book of Acts fits in the Bible. Okay? We want you to understand and rightly interpret what's happening in Acts, but not make it your doctrine that supersedes or overlaps and takes over what's taught in theological books like Romans and Hebrews. Okay? So if you go to Acts chapter 2, verse 46, look what it says. Day by day, attending, what? I thought they were meeting in homes. I thought they, yeah, they are. But they're also still attending to the temple. They're going to temple as a Jew. Isn't that interesting? They haven't made the full transition yet. And breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people. Do you see God criticizing them for going to temple? No, no. Because this is part of the transition. He knows how broad Judaism, what it means to them, how hard it is for a Jew to transition. So he allows. And look, look, let's continue on in verse 47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now look at chapter 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. This is when the Jews would go to temple to pray. If you were in Judaism, that's what you did. You were a good Jew obeying the law, and you're going to temple at 9 o'clock to pray. Peter and John are doing the same thing. But wait a minute. They've been set free by Jesus Christ. What is going on here? I want you just to notice the church has come into its own identity from Israel altogether, meeting in homes, baptized, taking the Lord's communion, and yet still struggling with a very difficult transition to give up all these older ways from Judaism. Folks, listen to me. If you want this explained more thoroughly to you, read the book of Hebrews. That's what it's about. It's showing the Jew the transition and the importance of leaving the old law and allowing Christ to be the carry on of the law. By the way, when Jesus said I didn't come to I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, I came to fulfill. The word fulfill means it doesn't mean to to, you know, become something new other than the law. Here's what it means. It means to carry out To take what the Old Testament gave us and to carry it forward so that you understand fully where it fits into God's picture of the gospel. The Old Testament law was one purpose. To point you to Jesus. To say to you, you're not good enough to live by the law. Go ahead and try. You can't do it. Therefore, it causes you to be frustrated And then when God sends Christ, and he is the one who will carry out the law that you couldn't carry out, you now have someone that you can place your trust in. Now, that's why Paul said that the Old Testament law is death. But the life that we have is in the Spirit, in Christ, amen, who lives in us. So this is all very important. Now, here in our study, we find Paul, we're going to I'm not going to go a lot longer. This is enough for us to take home and chew on. And again, your homework assignment, if you really want to dig deep in this and understand the difficulty of transition, just notice that the writer of Hebrews spends the whole book trying to help the Hebrews, the Jews, to make the transition. It's that hard. Well, the book of Acts is the picture of how hard it was. So don't take Acts out of its out of its perspective. Okay, so now Acts chapter eighteen, verse eighteen. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila at Sin. Uh, Syn- I can't even pronounce that. Syn- whatever it is, Sincre. Uh, he had his hair cut. Paul got a haircut, uh, for he was under a vow. Very interesting. We'll come back to that. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they had asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. We should always say, the Lord willing, I will do this. The Lord willing. Like if you ever say, well, tomorrow we're going to go here. This is what we're going to do tomorrow. Uh, mm, Life doesn't always go the way you plan, right? but one thing we know, God is sovereign. He knows everything that's going to happen before it ever happens. So you should always say, the Lord willing tomorrow, we're going to do this. Okay. That's what he's saying here. And he set sail for Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church. And then he went down to Antioch. Uh, After spending some time there, he departed and went from the one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples okay that's really confusing to hear all that stuff so let's put it up on the board i want to show you this is the second missionary journey that we've been studying we've already studied the first missionary journey and let me step to the side so those of you over here can see too but okay so so here's where paul is Whoop! turn this thing around so paul finds himself he was in athens right He went to the Areopagus, and there he taught, which is a hill where all the philosophers are. Marshall preached a great message on that Sunday. And then he goes to Corinth, and he spent uh, a year and a half in Corinth, okay? God gave him a rest, okay? He needed the rest. And then he makes his way down to that little place, whatever it's called, okay? Okay, and, uh, (laughs) hey, that's kind of like Semstrat. What's your last name? Semstrat. Okay, okay. So, he makes his way over to Ephesus, okay? So, now he's coming back across the Aegean Sea into Asia Minor, and now he heads home. He heads home. Why is he going down to Jerusalem? Why? Because when he was over here, he had to get his hair cut. Why? Because he had made a Nazarite vow earlier. His hair had gotten long. You ever had the picture of Paul being a bald-headed guy? People have said he's, he was bald-headed, you know, and all that. He had, for a time, Paul had long hair, okay? He looked like a hippie. And it was because he was keeping a vow before God. So now he's going to travel all the way down here. But he goes over first to Ephesus, where he spends later three years at another time. He'll spend three years at Ephesus. But look at the journey home. Now, in the first missionary journey, remember they left here and they went over to Paphos and Cyprus. Then they went up in here to, uh, I'm sorry, Perga up here. And then they went north up into this region. Okay? This time it's backwards. He started in Antioch up here. And then he goes all the way out. We've, we've already studied all of this. And now he's, he's, he's at Corinth And he's getting ready to head over to Ephesus, okay? So you can see where Paul is. And he's going to end up in Jerusalem. And now let's take a look at the Scripture again and see what's going on here. Let's make sure we understand what's happening before we close. Paul has been on quite a journey. He's traveled from Philippi through Thessalonica down to Berea, then to Athens, and then finally to Corinth. And all the way, along the way, he's been hassled, He's been persecuted. He's been beat up. I mean, I'm telling you, the guy is war slap out. It's been a very difficult journey. But finally, he arrives in Corinth, only to find out that Corinth is the most wicked city of all the cities he's ever been in. He wants rest. He needs a place to rest, and God sends him to the most wicked city of all. These people are vile. These people are wretched. And he doesn't know whether God can do anything about it. It was in Corinth that they had the worship of a sexual god, a female god, and a thousand prostitutes who worshiped at the temple of this this female god. They would come down at night and they would sleep with the men. That was their religion. This is the city that God sends Paul to, and Paul gets there, and what happens? I mean, you think, man, I thought Paul was going to get a break. He's probably thinking, man, I just need a break. I can't handle more of this, but you know what? God shows up. How many of you have been in a situation where you feel like, I don't know if I have anything left to give. I am slap wore out, and then God shows up. And God gives you what you need because he knows what you need better than you do. And so what happens in Corinth? Well, the unbelievable happens. A church is started in Corinth. Aquila and Priscilla, this couple who were forced out of Rome, and they come over to Corinth. And they are, they are tent makers by trade. So maybe they met Paul in tent making, Maybe they met Paul at the synagogue because they're they're Jews. And and now they start a church with Paul, and the church meets in their home. And the church becomes so successful that when Paul leaves, he takes Aquila and Priscilla with him. The church has been established in Corinth of all places. But here Paul is, poor old Paul, you know, worn out, chased all over Europe and Macedonia, finally gets to rest a little bit in Asia Minor, or, or over in, um, in uh, Europe, and he can't do it. And then he goes to Asia Minor, and, and God uses him there in Ephesus. So he's, he's blessed by the extended stay in Corinth, believe it or not, the, of all places, but Paul was able to rest for a year and a half in Corinth, okay? Okay. Now he's going to sail. Okay, now, look at verse 18, latter part of the verse. This is where I want to pretty much finish up here. So he's at Sinchreche, whatever that is. Man, I'll tell you. How do you say it, Marshall? Who knows? Okay. Uh, (laughs) He had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And so in Numbers chapter 6, it actually talks about the Nazarite vow. That's probably what it was. Usually this vow was taken for a certain period of time, and when completed, the hair, which had been allowed to grow freely, was cut off. And then it was taken to Jerusalem and offered up to the Lord in a very special ceremony. That's why Paul is going to Jerusalem. The purpose of the vow of a Nazarite was to express a unique consecration to God. It promised three things. One, that you would abstain from all products of the grape vine. So no drinking of wine. Now let me just tell you this. People will say all the time, well, the the wine in the Bible days was not alcoholic. So why in the Nazarite vow do you have to abstain from wine? Okay? Uh, Why was the wine that Jesus made at the wedding feast Uh, better than the wine they already had? How did they know the difference? Do you really think that people who had alcoholic wine and were enjoying it and they ran out and then Jesus made more and all he made was water wine with no alcohol, you really think they're going to go, woo, this is better? No, what he made was better. Okay, so a Nazarite vow, nothing from the grapevine. But also, you do not cut your hair. And I'll tell you the significance of that. And then thirdly, you don't go around dead bodies. Those are the three things. To be consecrated before God, stay away from dead bodies. Okay? So Paul's taking this vow shows that Jewish, he's probably trying to say to the Jews, because he's now a Christian, but Paul still wants to reach the Jews, right? So he's practicing a Jewish vow. Is he bound by God under the new covenant to make that vow? Absolutely not. But he wants the Jews to know that even though I believe Jesus is Messiah, and I'm going to teach you from the Old Testament who Jesus is, I'm not opposed to where you are. I understand where you are. Now that's probably some of why. I think the more important reason why is because Paul is, in fact, trying to fast. He's taking time to consecrate himself to God on a missionary journey, okay? So, so here he is, the hair's gotten long, and he's going he's gonna to fulfill the vow. He's going to cut off, of his, off his hair, and then he's going to carry it with him all the way to Jerusalem. Verse 24, look there if you will, please. Now, a Jew named Apollos, <clears throat> a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus... And he was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. And he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately. Notice that. Apollos taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. But look at the next little part of the verse. Though he knew only the baptism of John regarding Jesus. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. So as Paul did his work in Galatia and Phrygia, this man named Apollos comes from Alexandria. Here's what we know about Apollos. You might want to write these down. It's in the text, but let me just kind of encapsulate them for you. One, he was an eloquent speaker. He knew how to speak, how to communicate. Secondly, the scripture says that he was mighty in the scriptures. So he was well-versed like Paul in the Old Testament law. Thirdly, He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. He had been taught who Jesus is and had believed upon Jesus Christ, okay? Number four, he was fervent in spirit. The word fervent in the Greek is the idea of something that bubbles over. So what that means is Apollos was extremely enthusiastic in his preaching, okay? So he could really get excited about what he's saying, and then and then another thing about him. Number five, he spoke and taught accurately the things of God. So he didn't just he didn't teach falsely. No, know this: some people have misinterpreted Apollos. He did not teach falsely; he taught accurately what he knew. He just didn't know enough to teach Jesus in the full gospel. Okay, so what happens? Well, we read it earlier. Aquila and Priscilla, the ones that God brought with Paul, they pull him aside after they hear him speak. They're moved. They see the, the God's all over this guy. <clears throat> but they also know he's not teaching the whole gospel. So they pull him aside and they brought him up to speed of the whole gospel so that his message would be complete. So that people could believe and receive the Spirit, receive God. And so, verse 26, when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public Showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Now, in closing, I want to go back to what we read in chapter 9 or 19 about Paul saying, Have you received the Holy Spirit yet? Since you've believed, it shows a gap. Again, you don't find that gap anywhere else in the in the, in the Bible. It's only in the book of Acts where the whole book is a book of transition. A trans, it's a fluid flux. Okay? And so what does that mean? It means this. You don't build your doctrine on the Holy Spirit based on one passage of Scripture or one book. Systematic theology says it differently. You've got to be able to show throughout all the scriptures what's the thread, what's the main, what, what do we see, what's the norm. And the norm was that when you believed, the Holy Spirit comes into you. Okay? So there are denominations who still to this day, what they teach is that you might be saved, but you're not baptized in the Spirit yet. You don't have the Spirit yet. Not true. You can't, Paul said in Romans, you can't be a Christian if you don't have the Spirit. You understand? Now, I'm not trying to belittle, I'm not trying to judge those who have taken the book of Acts as their method of doctrine. I'm saying that I think it's inaccurate like with Apollos. They don't have the whole picture on it. So it's not about looking down upon anybody. I don't think that they're applying hermeneutics accurately. Okay? When, you're, when your experience precedes or exceeds good, sound exegesis or hermeneutics of Scripture, you are in danger of a misinterpretation and walking in something that's not totally true. So we need to be careful. That's all I'm saying. At Vero Bible Fellowship, listen. My opinion, or what I hope the Bible is saying, because I like to think of Jesus this way, you know, whatever it is I'm thinking about. What I hope, what I think, what I would like for it to say, what my opinion, all of that amounts to a hill of beans. The only thing that matters at Vero Bible Fellowship is that we do our very best To rightly interpret the Scripture and let whatever God... Listen, by the way, guaranteed, God in all Scripture, God is saying something. And guess how many interpretations there are? One, God's. If you ever get away from trying to find God's interpretation, what God's saying as the interpretation of that Scripture you're going to end up in all kinds of weird things that you're believing that just don't line up with all of Scripture. Does that make sense? So today, it's more about this church. All of us should be disciples of Jesus. What is a disciple? A student of Jesus. All of us should be students of Jesus. And all of us should be on a pursuit to try to accurately interpret God's Word. Amen? That's why we sit under Bible teachers that are are taking time to exegete and rightly explain the text. Not somebody who's just trying to get you whipped up into a frenzy. Woo! Do you feel the spirit today? Okay? You can feel a lot of things in a lot of different settings. And feelings can be real, but they can also lie to you. They're a false hope compared to the Word of God. There's days where I don't feel the Spirit. Does that mean that the Spirit's not with me? Of course He's with me. The Bible tells me He's with me. So I don't base my life on what I feel. Okay? I can be, that's dangerous. Okay? So like in our worship, right now we're meeting in a school, but even when we have finally the Lord blesses us with a building that is our own, Wouldn't that be wonderful to have our own property and a facility? Amen. One day, you know, right now we're nomadic. We're like the Old Testament Jews. We've got a tabernacle that we fold up and move around from time to time. And that's just who we are right now. We're okay okay with that as long as God has us here. But one day we'd like to have a place that we can call home. Amen. But I can promise you when we have it, we're not going to be big on the light show. Sunday's not going to turn into a performance hall where you go and sit and the lights go dark on you and you just watch the show. No, we have lights on during worship. Our focus is on the truth and the integrity found in the hymns that give sound doctrine. That's what I need in the morning when I come to church. Um, If you say, well, how do you feel today? Really? Early in the morning? How do I feel? Do you want me to tell? be honest with you how I feel? Okay, so, and I don't need you to try to to light my spiritual, with your spiritual big lighter, light me up into my feelings. I need you to give me scripture that's true, that give me confidence that in my life right now with what I'm facing, my God is real, and He is here, and He is with me. So we're building on what we know of God first, not on what we feel in our heart in the moment. Amen? That's our church. That's what we're here for. I pray that it'll always be that way at Vero Bible Fellowship because out there in the world, there's a lot of different kinds of churches trying to do different kinds of things. I know I heard recently one church actually came out and said, we want a younger congregation. We want a younger congregation. And I would say, then send us the ones you don't want. (laughs) Because the reality is, we want a multi generational church. Every single age in this room and in the next room are important. We don't reject any. We're not trying to appeal to one type. God wants us as his children to all be together. That's why our kids stay in during worship. We're all together. Is that a hassle for parents? Yeah, at times I'm, I'm sure it is. Is it a hassle for some of you when you hear a kid crying or whatever, distracting you during worship? Sure. But you know what? I'd rather have the kids there learning and growing with us than to ship them off somewhere else where they're not familiar with what it looks like as an adult to worship God. That's why a lot of kids leave, go to college, go off to work, and they never go back to church because they never really understood church. Amen? All right, I've talked long enough. And uh, we're going to stop and we're going to pray. I I hope that today this simple teaching from this text is helpful to you. Again, homework assignment. If you really want to go further to understand just how difficult it is for the Jew in the book of Acts to make the transition from Judaism to to Jesus, read the book of Hebrews, okay? Because that's all it's written for is to help them make the transition. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the clarity. Lord, the clarity that you want us to walk in. You don't want us to grab one passage that we like and then try to build our lives on it. You want us to understand what the Bible is saying in total and then find out what you're saying in that text and walk in it. The Bible doesn't need to change to fit me. I need to change to fit the Word. So Lord... This week, may the Bible study of of the people of Vero Bible Fellowship be effectual. May it bring a result that we would be greater salt and light in this world. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless each of you. Take time to fellowship. Good to see you. And uh, Teen Challenge boys will be back at some point here soon. Uh, Many of you were asking me this morning. I want you to know that, okay? If you need prayer for any reason elders and uh, prayer partners will be up front. They'll be glad to help you, okay? God bless.